I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And then from Hebrews six thirteen through 20. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I'm using uh, one of these stick microphones because apparently, I learned this morning, I have some misshapen ears that don't properly hold the little one that clips on. So uh, hooray for me for having deformed ears. I never never knew it all this time. my name is Jason. For those of you that uh, I have not met, um, I am married to my wife, Kelly, and we have seven children. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're one of those families. Um, if you ever wonder what it's like to have seven children, just imagine that you're drowning. And then someone hands you a baby. So that's, that's the life that that we lead, Uh, and uh, so I uh, really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be here this morning. Um, Actually, when Pastor Henry originally asked me if I would fill in this morning, I was like, yeah, sure, Um, with the understanding that he wasn't going to be here, (laughs) Um, but he's sitting right over here, and so that kind of increases the pressure a little bit on me. Uh, I got the sweaty palms and the butterflies in the stomach and all of that happening uh, due to his presence this morning, so thank you for... Blessing, blessing us with that, good sir. A few weeks ago, uh, if you were here on a Sunday morning, you may have seen uh, some of the students that were finishing their confirmation class, and they're the ones that actually sort of led the service that morning. They came up here one at a time, and they said, I'm following Jesus. I am a Christ follower, and this is how I know that, and this is what that means. And just one at a time, they came up, and they shared that. And I found that to be very, very powerful. Why? Why is it? Why was that so powerful? Well, I believe that people who follow Jesus should tell their story often. 
But quite frankly, I'm not sure that we always do that quite as well or quite as often as we should. And so if we can, yes, we're going to look some at the book of Hebrews, and yes, we're going to look at a little passage and kind of explore that a little bit. But if you don't mind, I would like to maybe kind of sidestep the traditional route of a sermon and actually just share with you my own story about how it is that I came to follow Jesus. I was very blessed in that I was born into a home where my mother and my father were both Christ followers. I was in church from nine months before I was born (laughs) until I was born, uh, and every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, uh, twice on every third Sunday of the month or third Thursday of the month or whatever it was, I was there a lot. And so as a youngster, I heard the stories of Noah and of Abraham and of David and Goliath. And I heard the stories of Jesus and his disciples and, and Jesus walking on water and the miracles. And so I had heard a lot of those things. And one night, one Wednesday night, I was attending a meeting of RAs. Now, those of you not familiar with a Southern Baptist Church in Alabama 35 years ago may not be familiar with RAs. That was Royal Ambassadors. It was a, a, an organization for young men at church, young boys at church, to get together on Wednesday nights and we'd have some Bible study time and we would do some activities together and we did some service projects on occasion. And I was there one night and Howard Martin came to speak to all of us. Now in my mind's eye as a second grader, Howard Martin was about 200 years old. (laughs) Howard had been around a very long time, but he shared with us that night a very simple illustration that I'd like to share with you. He just went to a chalkboard, and he drew kind of a little shape like this over on one side, and he put a little stick figure on the top, and he said, this represents you, and it represents me. And then he left some space, and he drew a picture kind of like that, and put a little cloud, and he wrote G-O-D in the middle, and said, that says God. And you'll notice that there's this big gap in between us and God. And the reason for that is because it tells us in the Bible, it tells us that uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. He said, that means you, and that means me, and that means your parents, and that means your and that means everyone that you have ever met has fallen short of the glory of God. There's a gap in between there. We have all sinned. Everybody. He said it also tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And yes, that does mean a physical death, but that also means a spiritual death in which we are eternally separated from God. And the wages of sin is death. We can't do anything to be good enough to get right with God. The wages of sin is death, he said, but that verse continues and it says the gift of God is eternal life through, and then he drew a cross, and he wrote Jesus on it. And that cross bridged the gap of the stick figure over here and the big cloud with God over here. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. He said, it's important for you to know that Jesus paid the price for your sins, and he paid the price for my sins. And if we will ask for forgiveness and we will make him Lord of our lives, then we can be made right with God. 
And I went home that Wednesday night, and I was laying in bed as a little second grader, just kind of pondering that and what that meant and what that looked like for me. And yes, I was only in second grade, but I knew I had sinned. I knew I had done things that had disappointed God. I disobeyed my parents. I had acted selfishly. I had acted out in anger from time to time. And so I crawled out of bed, and I got down on my knees, and I said, God, I'm a sinner. I have sinned. And I need you in my life. And I want to ask you to come in and sit right here on the throne of my heart. And I'd like to tell you that I literally felt a little washing inside me. And I crawled back in bed. And the next morning, I told my parents what I had done. And then that later on, I had a little follow-up with the, the pastor to really kind of confirm what it is uh, that I had done as far as asking for forgiveness, asking Jesus to be Lord of my life. And in the Southern Baptist tradition, uh, baptism follows a, de a decision to follow Christ. And so I followed then in believer's baptism as a youngster. And I share that with you not to tell you that, hey, everything has been fine and perfect since then. I'm not saying my life has been just uh, an example of how to live a holy life. I still mess up. I still make mistakes. If you don't believe me, I've got seven children that will confirm I don't always make the best choices, right? But I know that I have been made right with God. I know that I have accepted that gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so I wanted to share that this morning. And so you may be asking, well, what exactly does that have to do with what was read here in the book of Hebrews? Well, that's a good question. Let's see if we can work to tie all of that together. Now, the book of Hebrews, uh, just so we're kind of all on the same page, is an epistle. And if you haven't grown up in the church, or if you're not familiar with the word epistle, that's really just kind of a fancy word that means it's a letter. And it was a letter written to Hebrews, written to Hebrew people. There were people that had grown up under the Jewish faith, they were well-versed in Judaism. They were all Jews. They were Hebrews. And then Jesus came along, and now they have made that jump over into Christianity. They're like, yeah, I, I see what's happening here. This is great. But some of them, as they did that, were kind of faltering in their faith. Or some of them were kind of jumping over, but they hadn't really fully crossed into believing. And so the writer of Hebrews wrote this letter. And so if you, if you read all the way through, you'll see that it spends a lot of time saying, well, you know, Moses was great, but Jesus is way better. And Abraham was really cool, but Jesus is way better. So it spends a lot of time saying Jesus is, is the ultimate. Like, <laughs> that is uh, the, the main deal at this point. So Hebrews is an epistle. It's a letter. And what's amazing, and I always find this to be so fascinating, is that even though this was written to a specific group of people at a particular point in time, it is still applicable to us today because it is God's word and it was God's word back then for them and today it is still God's word for us. So let's dig into it just a little bit and let's, uh, let's kind of see maybe where these things all tie in together. So we're in Hebrews chapter 6 and we start in verse 13. If we look at the first, uh, let's say, couple of verses, maybe three verses. When God made his promise to Abraham, 
Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. See, this writer is appealing to the Jews who are very familiar with Abraham, right? They've heard the story of Abraham over and over and over and over their entire lives. And he reminds them of the story in which they're already familiar. He's like, hey, uh, do you remember Abraham? Remember that guy? Remember God's promise to him? It's in Genesis chapter 12. If you want to jot that down, you can go look it up. It says, I will make you into what? A great nation. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And the writer says, Abraham waited patiently. And that's mostly true, but he kind of skipped over a lot of stuff, right? Uh, If you remember Ishmael and all that fiasco, right? And uh, then when he does have a son, God tells him to sacrifice him. Whoa, right? But the point of the story is he waited patiently and all of those things came true. He received what was promised. So the writer's setting us up with some context here saying, uh, God made a promise to Abraham swearing by himself and that promise came true. God does not lie. If God makes a promise, it will come true. He follows up with some additional explanation. Verse 16, men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. See, God could find no one greater than himself, and so he swore by himself. And his already good word, his word we know is true, but he took it a step further with an oath. See, God can't lie. He is truth. It's not within his power. It's not within his character. It's not within his nature to lie. He can't falsify his word because he is truth itself. It goes on in verse 17. See, God wanted to make it just super clear because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. You can take this one to the bank. He confirmed his promise to the Hebrews in this letter, and then by extension to us, by two unchanging facts, his word and his oath. See, when God counsels us to do something, we know that it's right. God's not a taker. He's a giver. He doesn't tear down. He builds up. God brings blessing and peace and comfort and satisfaction into our lives. If we'll take it and we'll live by it, we'll never go wrong. Picking up in verse 18, it says, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we just talked about that, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul Firm and secure. Look at these symbols of encouragement that this writer is providing to these Hebrew people. Number one, it says God has given us a hope. That's the hope of salvation. That's the hope of security. And it says, uh, we have this hope as an anchor. Where's my little spot here? Uh, 
We who have fled to take hold of a hope offered to us. We who have fled to take hold of the hope. I think that imagery, it may not speak a whole lot to us today, but if we put ourselves back in this time, I think that really resonated with people who were reading this letter. You see, in Old Testament times, there were cities of refuge. And so if somebody committed a crime, they could actually flee to that city of refuge and they would be safe there until they could be granted a trial, until the the situation that they were in, the dust settled from that. They could remain safe. Well, that's the picture here. So put yourselves in in the the seat of someone who is a Hebrew and you're kind of making this jump to to Christianity and you're like, "Eh, I don't know. And the writer's saying, no, no, look, look. He has provided for us a place of refuge. We're guilty of sin, but we have refuge in God through his promise. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Again, there's a lot of imagery that I think we may not see at first, but if we think about it a little bit, and again, put ourselves in the position of someone receiving this letter, I think there are a lot of really great pictures of what's happening here. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. We are given an anchor. So you see, behind the curtain, that phrase, that means within the veil. Remember, think back to Old Testament times and the tabernacle and how things were laid out. The Holy of Holies, that was behind that veil. And the high priest was the only one that could go in there. And it was out of sight to the people. Our hope in the promise of God comes to us in the form of an anchor, which enters enters into that holy place. And then the anchor is dropped and it holds us there firm and secure. We can't see where the anchor is, but we know that it will hold us safely. You see, our hope is anchored in Jesus Christ. And though the storms of life may be raging around us, we shouldn't fear because our anchor holds within the veil. There's a hymn I'm sure many of you have heard before, perhaps sung before, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. What a beautiful picture of the security that we have. Again, in verse 20, it says, where Jesus, who went before us, some versions say, our forerunner, has entered on our behalf. We can be comforted by the fact that Jesus is our forerunner. Again, more imagery, more pictures that would be very real and very alive to the original readers of this letter. What is a forerunner? Well, that word is given to an individual who is a scout for an army. It's an advanced guard who would go ahead and prepare the way for those who would follow. You see, Jesus is our 
forerunner. He is our advanced guard. He has gone before us. He went within the veil to the Holy of Holies. And now we have a friend on the inside. He went before us to open the door. He split the veil. Remember when he died on the cross and the veil was torn, right? Top to bottom. He made it possible for us now to boldly go before the throne of grace. We all have access to God now through Jesus Christ. Remember the picture that Howard Martin drew? We have that. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we now have access to the Father. Are you familiar with kedging? K-E-D-G-I-N-G? I I wasn't until I started doing some reading about this. And, you know, we live about as far from the ocean as you possibly can. (laughs) And so, uh, number one, that's why my wife and I don't eat seafood in Fargo. We think it's just probably kind of sketch. But number two, and maybe why we're not familiar with kedging. This is the idea of kedging. This is what sailors can use um, uh, to free a stuck ship. So they use kedging, a kedging anchor, when a ship is grounded. You see, sailors will row out as far away from the grounded ship as they can, and they drop the kedge anchor into the sea. And then the sailors that are on board, they begin to use a winch, and it pulls their way toward the anchor. Now, normally, if you're like me, you don't think about moving toward an anchor. I think oftentimes we think of an anchor as being something in the past, something that's holding us down, something that's holding us back. But sometimes, and I think this is a picture of that, the anchor can actually be in our future. We move toward it, especially during turbulent times. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is expressing here. We have an anchor, we have a kedge, and it is in the Holy of Holies. It is in the presence of God. So for those of us that have a relationship with Jesus... We have Jesus as our Savior. We have Jesus seated on the throne of our hearts. Despite our difficult circumstances, we can hold to the hope and the promise that that anchor provides us. We can cling to the promises that God made. We can trust in his truthful word and his truthful nature. And our hope is secure. And folks, I want nothing more than that for you today. Maybe you've heard stories about Jesus for years. Maybe you have sung every single song in the entire hymn book. Maybe you grew up attending church. Perhaps your biblical knowledge is second to none. But let me encourage you, please don't miss the whole boat by 14 inches. And say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, the distance between our brain and our heart, give or take 14 inches. Don't miss this whole section, this whole concept. Don't miss it by 14 inches. If you have never fully put your trust in Jesus, if you have never stepped out in faith and say, Jesus, I trust you, if you've never said yes to Jesus, if you have never just taken that step to have him be your Lord and Savior, I would encourage you to move from just having it here to having him 
here. I urge you to make that decision today. If you do that, because of God's truthfulness, remember, he can't lie. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have an anchor for your soul, firm and secure. And I would encourage you to do that before you leave today. Thanks.